0: it feels a, a fortunate circumstance to be sitting here with you all to have spent these days in the sanctuary of IMS and in the company of each other and the the dedication the courage the goodness of heart expressed in so many ways as you've engaged in the practice and the forms of the retreat and one of the really fundamental elements of this practice that we're engaged in together is our capacity to turn our heart and our mind to the conditions we find ourselves experiencing to the situations we find ourselves in and On this last evening of our retreat, I felt myself very strongly moved to want to reflect a little on the larger conditions of our lives, of our circumstances, of our world. And in that one can, as maybe hearing that suggestion or that thought, there may be some response we have to it. In a certain way, we come on retreat to find some space from what goes on outside of retreat. And yet equally, we know, I think, in our hearts that we enter in retreat not just to address the conditions of our hearts and our minds, but equally because our hearts and our minds cannot exist and do not exist separate from the conditions of our world. And the Buddha in his teaching, in his wisdom and compassion, pointed to, the, to that element of our experience that we, we call dukkha, that which is hard to bear. This path of practice is a way of both acknowledging and responding to this as one of the fundamental areas of our shared concern. And I can imagine that perhaps for quite a few here, there will have been a sense of coming into this retreat from a condition or circumstance of the world that did not feel entirely easy. Not exactly as one might have wished or hoped it would be. And we may form conclusions. We may have ideas about what that means. We may ascribe some significance. And of course there is always significance in the conditions, the circumstances we encounter. But sometimes we (coughs) perhaps also need to hold them in a larger perspective. And one of the perspectives that arises to me when I contemplate the circumstances and conditions of the world, political, social, environmental, as well as personal and in communities and in various different ways we could think about it. I find myself reflecting on the, the process that takes place in our practice, and we've spoken about this, and some of you have mentioned even directly this way, that as we notice a certain deepening, and it seems wholesome qualities of, of heart and mind are starting to ripen and show, and it may reveal itself in some, some opening of heart, or some steadying and stilling of mind, And just as it seems that, in fact, something really rich or ripe is beginning to show and bear fruit, into that very same space emerges something of reactivity or strong patterning that seems to pick us up and carry us and divert us for some time. And these cycles are very natural in practice. It seems that as the capacity for wakefulness for clarity, for wisdom, for kindness, ripens and deepens in the heart, what actually emerges is also a, almost a flushing out of all and exactly what is not that. So we start to pay attention and we notice how unattentive we are. We seek to cultivate loving kindness. We notice the reactivity in our hearts and minds. If we misunderstand what's happening, we might imagine that somehow we've lost it or it's all gone to hell, shall we say, to coin a phrase. Well, it's not that I'm coining it, but to use a phrase, shall we say, that we may have had something of that sense in our lives on occasion, perhaps, and who knows, maybe recently, for all sorts of reasons. And yet, what we see in our practice is if we stay with those places, if we don't fixate onto the, oh, it was going so well and now it's not doing so. But we see, okay, this seems to be the nature of the process. There are times of deepening. And then there are times of having to work with and handle the forces and the powerful forces that seems to release into our heart and our mind. and when we look at the world and the circumstances of our times it's I think important to reflect upon the way we view the situation and the conclusions we may form about it is it moving forward is it going backward is it looking good or is it looking bad or whatever we kind of conclude from what's happening you probably all know and perhaps even sort of wearyingly familiar with the story, but it's still a lovely story, so I'll tell you it again, and some of you might not know it, Of the villager in a, um, a country, I'm not sure where the story comes from, but a villager who's got a horse that runs away one day and all the villagers say, oh, how terrible, what a great loss, and the owner of the horse, he says, well, maybe it was, yeah, maybe it wasn't. And the horse is gone for some time. Beautiful mare she was. And then at some point later she comes back and she brings this wild stallion, this amazing beast. All the villagers say, oh, how lucky, how fortunate, how wonderful. The man says, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And uh, his son, while uh, trying to ride the horse, falls off and breaks his leg. Oh, how terrible, how tragic. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And then at some point soon after that, the uh, king comes recruiting soldiers for the army to go and fight in the war, and because the son's leg was broken, he doesn't have to go. Oh, how fortunate, how wonderful. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. This human realm we live in is in the teachings characterized by its mix, its equal mix, in a sense, or its balanced mixture of dukkha, that which is hard to bear, and we could say sukha, that which is delightful, uplifting or blessed. This is recognized as the optimal field for practice. Not the world in which everything is easy and going well and as we would wish it. Not the personal world as such, not the shared world that we're in. It's not that. It's this mixture and to reflect on this, to see what this means for us. The modern social, political, environmental circumstances that we could call, I think with some justification, we could describe as degrees of crisis or feeling it to be in a critical state or stage or position. And I remember receiving a letter from a student in Boston in November, just responding with concern and distress as to what was happening in the world around her and wondering what to do, what to do. How do I respond to what I see, to what I hear, to what I feel? It's noisy, okay. The first noble truth applies even to these. <laughs> oh, thank you for letting me know. Is that better? Hmm? Yeah, it's really hard to listen to a Dharma talk when there's an annoying sort of crackly sound going on in the background, isn't it? So I like, just have to breathe and relax and hope it stops <laughs> and then it just doesn't. Yeah? And it just comes along and then there's some compassionate response from someone and oh, things improve. <laughs> crisis, again perhaps quite commonly commented on or reflected on, the Chinese character for crisis is constructed so I'm told I, cannot, uh, I wouldn't know the character if um, it was sitting in front of me, but I'm told that the Chinese character for crisis has two sub characters within it and they represent danger we know that one, and opportunity oh That's interesting. Danger and opportunity. In our practice, when we see that our deepening and our opening has seemed to evoke or invite something more challenging, more difficult, the invitation is actually to turn towards it and to see what's needed here, not to get into a catastrophizing story of, oh no, my gosh, my practice has all gone to hell. Although that's often what we do. And we notice that that's perhaps the counterpoint to when things are going well. It seems it's calm, it's smooth, or there's some unexpected ripples of tenderness and loving-kindness in the heart. And we think, wow, things are going great. And we kind of make these conclusions about what's happening, as if this is a fixed positionality that has a trajectory of continuity, rather than a dynamic process that moves, that fluctuates, that's perhaps, if anything, cyclic, and may deepen over time, but in doing so may take us through many difficult phases and places, equally as many places of delight and discovery. So if we notice, and it's really useful to notice our own tendency in our our practice, but equally in our relating to the world, whether we tend to catastrophize things, where we tend to focus on that which looks threatening, dangerous, scary, confusing, or feels painful, unsettling, distressing, and scary. And we see that when we focus in this way, fear, anxiety, and even despair may arise for us in the face of what seems to be an ongoing flow of what is not easy for us. And it's important to be to be kind, to be respectful, to be caring in response to what we may be feeling there but at the same time to understand the orientation of the view towards catastrophizing may not be giving us the full picture. We can equally say of course that there may be at times a tendency to romanticize what's going on and things are going great and things are looking good and we might notice hope and excitement and delight arising in those contexts. And yet, the intensity of the experience in either of those positions tends to a little bit depend on, in a way, the not quite including the other. So, when it's all going really well, it seems so much more catastrophic when it's not. Because we've felt it to be so catastrophic, suddenly it seems wonderful and amazing that things are going well and it is of course it's not to deny the validity and the reality of some of our experience there but there's a there's a need to attend to both in our practice and our inner experience and the journey of unfolding and exploring and seeing what's possible there but and equally in the world and our engagement and response with this to notice which way we go if we tend to look towards what makes us feel okay about oh, it'll be alright, things are not too bad, you know, it could be worse, and there's a kind of complacency, we're actually really encouraged and invited to really attend to what are the dangers, where is their vulnerability? And this is one of the, in a way, directions that Dharma practice takes us. It's like, yeah, so things may be doing fine, but actually contemplate your mortality, we're not here forever, we think, oh, okay, so there's some challenges ahead. What might I need to attend to in order to be me- able to meet those skillfully? What would be wise for me to have cared for or looked at if actually I acknowledge and advert to my mortality? And not just, of course, my mortality, the mortality of. Of cultures, the mortality of communities, the mortality of species, including our own, the mortality of environments. Oh yeah, even whole ecosystems, planets, planetary systems are in that field of mortality. And it might seem like a rather long time away, but somewhere beyond the horizon of our own experience, even our very sun will either fade out or explode. And that's probably not something we need to worry about in the next couple of weeks. But just, just including that, if, if our tendency is towards complacency about things, I'm not suspecting that's necessarily... Well, Well, the, that particular tendency isn't necessarily what moved me to speak this evening in the way I wish to and am, or hopefully am. What we can also notice is our tendency to focus on the, uh, that which evokes fear, to, to start to pick out, to focus on, oh my gosh, what about this? And oh my gosh, what about that? Now, that's useful from a place of complacency. It's not so helpful from a place of distress or fear because it simply amplifies and fuels that particular reactivity. And so I kind of was curious and interested to notice that sometimes the practice in certain Media—it sort of only happens often at the new year. It doesn't most of the year. The advert, what sells newspapers and what sells clicks on, um, on websites is mostly bad news, and so that's what gets put there. That's what we hear a lot of. But in terms of just some not insignificant good news, I found myself just wanting to, to name and to for myself and the world turn my attention to because I feel the distress. I feel concern I can feel and I speak with others and yourselves and I'm sure you've had this experience also of concern of distress Of it's like for the welfare of our communities for the welfare of our environment for the welfare of our ecosystem for the welfare of our friends and equally for those we don't know and so at the ecological level just the, the real significance in the spite of concern and distress, that's very real, well, of the, the Ross Sea Marine Sanctuary being agreed by the international powers that actually mostly don't agree on things because they all want to take advantage of the resources in something that's two times the size of Texas in the, in the, um, in the Antarctic. And the Ross Sea Marine Sanctuary, this amazing commitment of the, the international world. It's a small thing in one way but there's another sense that, oh yeah, it's really important to include. It's not a small thing, two times the size of Texas. It's actually quite a large thing. And within that, those waters and that environment, the international community has committed itself to not exploiting or um, in any way harming that, to have it as a refuge and a sanctuary for, for, for nature. And there are many things, in fact, one could say about that and about other such things. But because for many, I think the election was a very distressing and challenging situation. And the reality was that no matter what happened, it was going to be that for many people. The degree of polarization, the degree of fear, the degree of otherness making that 's been happening not just here in this country but in many countries and in our world can only lead to distress and pain and where that distress and pain lands we have for those where that lands some responsibility to care for it. I had to go well, I had to go to get my new visa in the American embassy in um, in London, just uh, after the election. And as I was going, I was thinking, no matter what, Before, when I was planning it before the election, I was thinking, no matter what happens, there's probably going to be about half the people in that building are going to be really unhappy. No matter what happens here. But for myself and my own concern, for seeing what seemed to be a legitimising and a validating and an authorising of perspectives of of hatred and perspectives of... um, discrimination and exploitation and disregard for oppression. I personally was deeply affected, deeply distressed. And I also recognized the some of the perspectives and the validities of another view. You won't probably have heard, because it happened while you were on a retreat, but I was personally starting to feel a little Sick in my stomach when I read that prior to the first meeting of the new Congress, the uh, members of the Congress got together and voted to essentially, they, the word in the media was gut, disempower the, the ethical watchdog that was set up over Congress in light of the various, uh, now what is it, you know, the. Uh, Oh, the word's gone out of my head. I think you know what I mean, why why you need an ethical watchdog. In the sense of, oh, that's happening in a secret vote before they even meet, and it's going to happen. And and interestingly, I didn't know that I'd say this word in this line here, but actually, the president tweeted, that's a really bad thing to do. No, sorry, not the president. The president-elect tweeted, that's a really bad thing to do. And they rescinded it. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? I'm not trying to say that one can form too many conclusions there. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that. But something in me thought, oh, it's really—it's not quite as one-sided as I might sometimes feel. What's here? And I just wanted to name, you've probably heard this and seen this, I imagine, but that turning towards the positive little. In fact, the election here in this country, and I was happy to read this, it returned more representatives in different categories of Senate and Congress and state representatives from different ethnic and other groups than have been before. And there are now the first Indian American woman in the U.S. House of Representatives. And um, there is the the first bisexual governor in Oregon, the first openly LGBT governor, the first Somali-American Muslim lawmaker in Minnesota, the first Indian-American senator, the first Thai-American senator, and the first Latina in the U.S. Senate. And interesting just to hear that. And just, oh, wow, okay, this election actually also brought some, some some people into positions of power that have some perspective in the realm of concern that I have. I'm not saying that to say, oh, isn't it great how things are in the world? Because that's not how I experienced it. But to notice what happens if I pay attention to that which holds or expresses the, the perspective that's different to where my mind tends to go in the territory. Do you follow what I'm suggesting there? One, one of the responses that's essential is to see what helps us to find balance that we don't go into a catastrophizing or a romanticizing of circumstances. It's not just this or that. There is always challenges. There are always blessings. There may be times when it feels a bit out of balance. But those are the times when we are called to address that imbalance. And so, Practicing, embodying the dharma, embodying the awakened heart. The practice of ethics, of non-harming, of kindness and generosity. The cultivation of wisdom and compassion that we've spoken about. For me, this is a practice of radical activism. And I remember when I first encountered teachings and activist principles in my teenage years, one of the the slogans and the things that was suggested was think globally, act locally. You've probably heard that one before. Now, as far as I'm concerned, meditation practice, Dharma practice, is as local as it gets. (laughs) We're right here in the place where the seeds and the sources of both greed and hatred and delusion arise. And we're also right here in the place where the seeds of wisdom, of compassion, of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion can be found and nourished and brought forth into the world. To engage with our inner process is ultimately not separable from an engagement with the outer conditions what we experience as inner and what we attribute as outer is not ultimately so it's a way it appears it's a way we construct an organized experience to make sense of the way it happens but it's not the fundamental truth of things and so practice asks us to embody a fearless, a courageous, a loving engagement with both inner forces and outer forces. And there are times when the emphasis maybe needs to be more on the inner. And there are times when the emphasis perhaps needs to equally include the outer, or so-called outer, circumstances and situations we're engaged with. This Beautiful capacity we have, we've spoken of, spoken to, and explored, and invited the, the the trembling of the heart, anukampa, that expression of compassion that feels and senses where there is where there is distress or dukkha or difficulty, where there is limitation or bondage, where there is oppression or exploitation, whether within our own system we could say, or whether within the larger system of the world that. As Catherine was saying, in the openness of these systems, just as the air we breathe in is passed amongst us and shared with trees, so too these vibrations, these sensations, these concerns, they are shared territory. And they have their particularity in the here that we could call me. But that particularity is inextricably woven in to the there we could call you, or them, and ultimately reveals the, the sharedness of what we could call us, or this. And yet coming into that trembling, coming into that sensitivity, what we may notice is that together with that sensitivity, there's when we're in a place of openness, when we're connected, when fear is not predominant, naturally there's a responsiveness to heal, to transform, to wish, to serve the well-being of life. And this asks us to stand up and name what we see. When we see it in our heart and mind, we actually need to name it. We invite ourselves to say, oh, I see this reactivity. This is fear. Or this is ill will. Or this is aggression. And to name it, not judge it. When we see it in the world likewise, we are called to stand up and name it. I see this. And I choose not to act in ways that reinforce it, and in fact, I also choose to take action that will begin to transform it. This is the inner commitment of practice and expression practice, and the outer is likewise. And what's interesting is both of those tend to involve some willingness to have a reduction in personal comfort. We train. To be able to handle discomfort, not just because it's a good spiritual idea. Not just because there's a freeing that happens and there's more space for us when that's the case. But because as we learn to be able to handle the discomfort that we do encounter in life, we're more able to really trust and act from what feels true and right in the depth of our being. Even though that might not be the comfortable option some of the time. Taking sacred action, acting from our depths, sometimes requires sacrifice. Not some absolute self-destruction kind of sacrifice, but the letting go of comfort as our priority. We've seen that in the inner journey. It's true equally as we move in the world. And it may be small or simple things. Just I remember a friend pointing out to me once when my language when I was giving some teaching was reflecting a dominant culture perspective and I referred to babies as pink. And he said, well, maybe for you, but not for most of the world. And it's, of course, right, true. And I just had never really thought about it. This was some years ago. But I remember that for my friend, that wasn't an easy thing to do. He had to take a risk. And actually for me, it wasn't an easy thing to do to let it in and go, oh, yeah, that's true. Both of us were a little uncomfortable there. But that discomfort was actually something sacred for us. And I'm so grateful to him that he helped me see that. The irony being that, you know, I have that pale skin privilege, even though I'm partially from an ethnic group of of colour. And another friend also some years ago, who in a way somehow it seems adverted to the implications of certain of my behaviours before I had. And he he came in very compassionately said, you know, sometimes when I see you flying somewhere for a holiday, and I'd only just started doing it, I have to confess, and he just felt like that was something I could do, he said, it makes me feel sad. He didn't judge me or blame me. He told me how he felt in his heart. And again, I think it took some courage for him to do that. It wasn't an easy thing to say. And it actually wasn't an easy thing for me to hear. And it was like, oh, oh wow, I, you know, I, sometimes I really feel I need a break. But you're right. I, actually, I, have, I fly quite a bit for what I feel like I really must do or, or am called to do. Not as much as I used to, but to come here, for instance. And I sit and think, is it okay for me to get in a plane and burn all that carbon? And I think, well, probably better than having 100 people come to England to see me there. <laughs> not that you'd necessarily be going to do that. I'm not suggesting that. But in terms of, oh, this feels like something where it's worth doing that for. But actually, going on a holiday, I'm not sure I feel that anymore. And there's a kind of a loss of that particular way of comforting myself. Um, now we tend to spend what would have been an airfare on um, on a hotel with a hot tub if we can, so at least we can be warm, rather than going somewhere warm in winter, which is when it might have happened, or did two or three years anyway, that rather brief excursion to holidays, which were not part of my upbringing, but something that had their place for a little while. It's interesting when we can see someone, and from a place of care and love, let them know what concerns us whether they be someone we know well or someone we know less well. The quiet political activism of observing if there's a lot of critical speech and sort of backstabbing going on in the in the, the coffee room at, at work to just sort of say, you know, I don't really feel great when that goes on. You know? Do you think we could talk about something we love? Actually, most people would be much happier too. But it needs someone to stand up and say, hey, Sure, these things concern me too. But let's talk about something that brings forth the the beautiful qualities of our hearts. And of course, in a way that's in the relatively safe territory of our friends or our workmates, the people we know. It takes more than that, it seems, for us to meet what's here. But if we notice our tendency is to go into a a solidification of otherness, which is where the place of bad, of danger, of evil or wrong, if we make that fixed and located as absolute in other individuals or groups or places or movements even, what we tend to do is get involved in the very same process that we see those groups doing and don't like. Where they're making another group into the bad, the problem, the wrong, the hate, hateful and hateable and justifiably um, attackable, or exploitable, or negatable, or get rid I don't mean to extend our dictionary in quite that direction, but I think you know what I mean. Sorry. When someone acts, enacts, embodies, perpetuates violence, oppression... Exploitation. If we look and see, it comes from greed and hatred, from fear and disconnection. It's born of blindness. And in fact, if we look at ourselves in those places, we know how much suffering there is in that. And we can see, therefore, and understand actually, this is a condition of suffering. That doesn't make it okay. That doesn't mean we want to support it at all. I'm not saying that. But to see the condition of suffering that is playing out, that is perpetuating, that with unconsciousness has the effect of trying to recycle and extend itself. The tragedy of blindness. The tragedy of unheld pain is that it somehow seeks to heal itself by passing itself to someone else. And it doesn't do that. It simply extends and amplifies itself. And as hatred extends, what happens is that more and more groups or individuals within that field become subject to it. We see that if we study what happens in hatred, in ourselves or in the world. And any group or individual or collective that in practices and embodies that to a large degree ends up with it impacting within their very own members when others have been moved out of that field. I don't want to get too much into the analysis of that. But it's important that we contemplate the suffering of all beings here. And that when we engage, as we do, and as we need to, to address what we see happening that is causing harm, that is damaging, that is destructive, that is oppressive, exploitative, that we do so knowing that our action is for the well-being of everyone involved, all beings and all of life. To protect someone from... Violence, oppression, or hatred is also to protect the perpetrator from the harm they do themselves by enacting it. To hold that perspective in our heart, to understand that is to protect ourselves. So I hope it's clear that's not taking away, that's in fact encouraging and affirming and asserting the need to act. But that we understand where we come from and why. You may know the story of an interview with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, where the interview was somewhat unable to comprehend his holiness's characteristic sort of cheerfulness and even it seemed sort of kindly perspective with regard to the chinese government and he said to him you know this 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 government they've done all these things to your country and to you and it seems you you care about them and you have compassion for them i don't understand how this can be can you explain it? And His Holiness, He said, you know, of course I'm paraphrasing, I haven't memorized the interview, but He said, you know, they've taken my country. They've destroyed many of the monasteries of my people. They've tortured and imprisoned and executed many of my brother and sister, nuns and monks. They've made it impossible for me to live there, so I've lost what was my home and ancestral connections to land. He said, they've taken everything from me they could take. Should I let them take my mind as well? We don't always get to choose what we will have taken from us. But what we can hold And hold dear is the capacity we have to again come back to the wellspring of love, of compassion, of wisdom. That can look into this world and see the underlying patternings and dynamics playing out. That express themselves through individuals, through groups, through cycles in countries, in nations, in centuries. And equally in moments through the very flicker of my own intimate experience and know these cycles for what they are. To know what works in this situation, what is useful. And the words of the Buddha and the Dhammapada so often remembered and recited because of the power. Hatred does not cease by hatred. But by non-hatred. This is the ancient and eternal law. We have to break the cycle. To not become part of it requires our wisdom to see. We are all victims of hatred, of greed, of exploitation. Of course it's true that some are more directly oppressed and impacted and there is the need to protect and support and stand up for those who are most directly in the line of fire in terms of what is expressing itself in the world. Whether we're talking about individuals, communities or species, environments, all of that, absolutely. But to understand that all of that is in the context of our interconnectedness, our interdependence, our shared existence. And so sometimes we have to meet or we have to bring some courage into this place. It doesn't mean we can always open our heart to those we feel threatened by or those we see doing harm. Sometimes that's not what the primary thing is. We maybe just need to stand up and say no. But there's one practice that a teacher of mine here who uh, spoke about this once in the context of metta, she said, you know, there was someone and the only way I could ever do loving kindness for this person was to imagine them tied to a chair. <laughs> Interesting what you can do. <laughs> tie them to a chair in your mind. We're not suggesting actually tie them to a chair. We're just imagining someone. It's like we need to have them in a place where there's no danger, where we're safe. Perhaps where they're needing to be restrained, that might be required. And then, oh, then I can actually see that they are tired, that they are actually already in bondage, perhaps, and I might find my heart open to them. And yet, knowing in this that opening our heart does not mean we become nice. Passive or submissive. It's in fact one of the necessary conditions to really have full access to our strength and our power because our heart is part of the conduit for that. And when the heart is open, it gives us the courage, which is a heart quality, to stand in the face of aggression and violence and simply say, no. And as I speak about it, you see my hand appears in the shape. The Buddha is sometimes seen standing with his hand like this. It's called the fearless mudra. It's the soft part of the hand. I've spoken about it here before, I think. It's not aggressive. It won't hurt anybody, but it can say very clearly, stop or no. And if that message isn't heard, it can say, back off. And of course, sometimes we need actions, not words. But this quality is actually connected with the heart, and the the life, the vital life force. And the Buddha is often seen also with the the hand. I don't know if you can see. Like this, usually standing, but sometimes sitting, and the open hand of friendliness, of kindness, of metta, together, firm and kindly. This quality of compassion that is expressed as that sense of a a parent standing at the door of their infant child when someone comes towards them and the absolute sense that this person, if they wish any harm upon my child, they're not coming through this door. Just no way, no way is that going to happen. And we need to find that place in ourselves to say no. We can find that place to meet the this, this subtle and maybe sometimes not so subtle but insidious forces of aggression and hatred in the mind, the inner critic tendencies, superego we call it in certain disciplines, judging mind. Sometimes we need to just say no, that's not useful here not judging or rejecting it, but just saying no, that does not lead onwards in any way useful. And sometimes in the world likewise, we need to stand up. When there is anxiety, when there is fear, it needs us to act because anxiety is the containment of energy for action when our focus has gone towards something threatening that's not actually here. So we can't do anything. And so there's this activation of energy to engage and nothing I can bring it towards because if I'm imagining some catastrophic future circumstance or event I can't do anything with it. It's not here yet. But what I can do is see what is here what can I respond to and find a response there. Action dispels Anxiety, because it engages our natural response need. It's actually part of our life-living intelligence. We need to respond to danger. But danger is something imminent. And therefore there's a response we can make. If there isn't danger, anxiety needs to be dialed back into what I would call caution, which is where we're looking to see, is there danger? But we're understanding that right in this moment, That danger isn't here. That's where we come into the present moment. And then that energy, rather than going into action, which is to respond to actual danger, actual threat that's right here, it comes back into the upright sense of my being and its alertness. That energy is available for alertness and caution naturally brings alertness. That's the skillful expression of that quality when the danger isn't here. But I'm not pretending there may may not be danger. I'm just aware that I want to be alert for it. But it's here. It's not taking me out of myself, which is what fear and anxiety tends to do if we don't see it. And in taking us out of ourselves, we go off balance and we're much less able then to handle things that come to us. So, a couple of stories I'd like to share in regard to what's possible for us. We can choose to stand up in our hearts inside, to what we see inside, in our bodies outside, to what we see around us, with our voice, with our presence. To not collude in that which we do not agree with. To not stand by quietly when that which is causing harm takes place in our proximity. I think I've maybe mentioned here before Um, I did actually a few days ago. I think my grandmother is from Calcutta. She's Bengali. And as a young woman in the movement of uh, seeking independence from the the British empire, I guess we would say, the British subjugation of the Indian nation. She was part of the movement where many young women and men sat in front of the, the guns and the army of the British Raj, as it was, and said, we will not give you authority over us. You can shoot us if you wish. She didn't say this literally herself, but that was the message. And you, you'll know the story, I imagine. To say, actually, this is more important than whether you harm any of us individually here. We're not actually... Backing off from you. And of course, the soldiers were ordered to fire, and one or two of them did, but actually, very quickly, they couldn't. The officers were saying, Yeah, you know, let's get these people out of the way, but human beings couldn't do that. Facing that strength and courage and vulnerability being presented in that way. And for me, it's an incredibly inspiring thing. It may seem like it was a little while ago now, but there are ways in which we are called to stand up in the face of violence and maybe see what we feel willing in terms of how far we can step out of our comfort zone. In, in Buddha's teaching, there's often reference to the concept of wrong speech, of causing harm through speaking out and or saying things. and. Of course, that's something we need to be really careful of and take care with. And yet in this context, I think there's also, because there can be a tendency to not want to upset people or say things that someone finds difficult, there's also such a thing as wrong silence, where we fail to see or speak what we see, where we don't actually name what's going on or name the impact we see arising from what's going on. You probably, I imagine, many of you are aware of the, the story of the, the protests and the demonstrations and the, uh, the many committed activists and uh, indigenous peoples, Native Americans and others at Standing Rock in North Dakota over recent weeks and months. And again, that sense of just standing up for something that's worth being uncomfortable for and rather cold, I expect among other things, and pretty scared at times, I believe, in the face of the the, the relatively, well, the, the degree of uh, force being presented against them. And yet there's something also inspiring to see people do this, to receive communications from people I know who went there and said, yes, I'll stand with you. in England. I was so touched reading about, a, um, it was, I'm not sure if it was a website or an app or just an organisation that was internet linked where after a certain um, I'm not sure what it was even that happened but there have been a number of, <laughs> I should do research, shouldn't I? <laughs> I? I think I know but because I'm not sure. I, I think it was after a, um, a. a terror action that took place in Europe that was attributed to Um, I think ISIS, um, or whatever that's called these days, but it was associated with the community of Islamic people, and of course then the level of fear and danger for anyone in the Islamic community in England and Britain amplified as a certain degree of hostility and threat was directed towards them. People completely unassociated with anything that was going on there. And there was a whole movement of people gathering outside mosques, just to say, you know, people who weren't from that community, gathering outside saying we want this place to be a safe place for you. And anyone who has other ideas, they're not coming through us. There was people who were putting themselves available, saying I'll meet you at your workplace and ride the underground station, to the tube with you to your home. If you want someone with you, I'll go with you. And making use of their you know, their own particular privilege, perhaps being part of the more dominant or um, sort of less threatened elements of the culture and the community just say, I'll stand with you, I'll go with you, I'll be there with you if you need that. And I was just so inspired by that. It's like, oh, small things that actually make our culture, that actually make our society, that actually make our world. There are so many ways we can do that. And every little thing we do makes a difference. Just speaking out and saying... I don't feel okay about what I'm seeing. Even if we're not saying it to the person to whom it's happening, but we just we let that be known. Or I'm concerned about this. I don't know what to do. But then talk to your friends. Find other people. Engage. There is an immense power of human heart and goodness in this world. And so many resonate with your care and your concern. So many have found more ways than maybe you or I so far. Or maybe you're some of the ones who are finding those ways. And I know amongst us here, there are people who are wholeheartedly engaged with questions of social justice, of racial justice, of equality of treatment for people from various non-dominant culture groups, for environmental work, for all things And many things of such importance in our world. And I bow to you, really, all those of you who are engaged in this. And for me, this is another form of activism here that I hope supports that. We are not alone. We are not without immense power. How we live our lives is what creates our environment. The social and psychic environment is created by our behavior. Not by the rules, not by the lawmakers, not by the media. Ultimately, it's created by our behavior. And just as we create an environment here, together in how we live and move and share the space, just as we learn to create an environment, so here, collectively on the retreat, just as we learn to cultivate an environment inwardly, And how we hold and meet and engage with the forces both wholesome and unwholesome that arise within us. So too in the world how we live our life becomes a primary offering to the transformation of the world. To the healing of its suffering. To the supporting of the goodness that can and does emerge again and again and again unstoppably in life. And to do so without fear. To know fundamentally we are that. We are this that we are amidst, that we are concerned for, that we are engaged with. We are this. It's not something out there distant from us. Our very engagement with it comes from the depth of where we do know this even though we don't always remember. And our engagement in that way weaves us ever more deeply and fully into this, this life. What it is that is fundamental cannot be lost or destroyed. What the greatest danger we face is not the difficulty of our circumstances and our conditions. Although they indeed are challenging, it's to lose contact with the understanding that we are of this and to act and imagine that we are separate from any part of it. If we look and see what causes the greatest harm, it comes ultimately from that belief. And so if we can live our lives, as an affirmation and expression, our confidence and a commitment to the living truth of our shared existence, we become part of an unstoppable transformative power that doesn't guarantee that things look good or feel easy, but that we have set our compass and our life in alignment with what is most important. And at times, it's the inner work that we may prioritize. Sitting on a cushion for days or weeks. At times, it may be our families, our communities. At times, it may be in the larger sphere of the world. And all of it is practice, and all of it is Dharma, and all of it is activism. And so, our, the invitation here is to live with courage for the welfare, for the protection. For the healing of our world and each other. And to do so with each other. Above all, and various times people have spoken or asked, you know, what do we do? How do we do it? And of course, I don't have the answers, but so important. Connect with each other. Share your concern and find out what you can do because there are always things you can do. There's always a response that's possible to what arises within us, to what emerges around us. There's always a response that will make a difference. And in doing what we can, there's also a kind of place that the heart can come to rest from knowing we've done what we can. And trusting that that's what is asked of us and we've responded. Inner, outer, or both. And just to finish with a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King whose birthday is in just about a week, the 15th of January. He said, and he said many things of course, but he said, I refuse to accept the view that humankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of prejudice and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never, and sisterhood, that's my addition, can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. And so I'd just like to sign up as being in agreement with those words. (laughs) Invite you to consider whether that may be a possibility. And uh, I'd like to stop there. But thank you for the fullness of your listening. Let's just sit quietly for a few moments. So may we all in our practice here and in our lives together, may we we come to deeply trust in in the power of this unarmed truth, this unconditional benevolence, and our fundamental capacity to make a difference in our life and in our world. For our own welfare, for the welfare of all beings, for the well-being of all that lives, of all that is.